Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to the show, Mike Moraski. Hey, Victor. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Well, great to have you here. Now, Mike, your story is a sobering one. Hopefully it has a happy ending, but it's got some few bumps in the road in the middle. Before we dive into the key messages, why don't you give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? I appreciate you asking. I've always been of the philosophy that success leaves clues. And I think that if we look around, whether that success is positive or it has been a failure, those successes leave clues and people can learn from them. So I was in the construction business and my business had grown very large and I woke up one morning and I was just burned out and I couldn't do it anymore. I was still banging nails and looked at my wife at the time and said, I'm done. So I sold the company, took a year off, thought through what I wanted to do. Along the way, we did a couple of fix and flips on, on a couple of two flats in Chicago. And during that time, I met a real estate agent who was very successful. And I went to him and said, hey, you know, I'd like to get into real estate. And he said, boy, I think you'd be great at it. I think you have the skills and, and the ability to do that. And so I went and he made me a, a cassette tape. I'm sure that a lot of your listeners know what that is today. But a cassette tape I listened to over and over again that gave me the fundamentals and the principles of how to be successful. So I went in the real estate business. In the first nine months, I sold 78 homes. I built a team selling 125 a year. And I did that for about eight years consecutively. 2005 rolled around and I saw the market was starting to shift. Wasn't really sure what was going to happen, but I saw a lot of things coming down the road. And I said, you know what? I've always wanted to be in the apartment business, thinking that the commercial sector would withstand what the residential market was going to go through. So I started to raise money. I had uh, followed the model of a very large uh, syndicator out of Chicago and understood that if you raise private equity, married it with a great real estate deal, that you'd stay in the middle. And as long as everything went well, everybody made money and was happy. Well, I raised $18 million in about 30 months, about $60 million worth of real estate, was 4,000 apartments in five different states, and built a property management company managing 7,500 units. And today, as a result of that, and a couple of stumbles along the way, I'm in the coaching and training space. Wow, that's quite a journey. So in the wake of 2008, you probably suffered along with a lot of folks. Yeah. 2008 rolled around and, and Victor, I'll never forget. I was sitting at lunch with my CFO and the news happened to be on and we were watching him carry boxes out of Lehman Brothers by the dozens. And I looked at the across the table at, at him and I said, man, we're in big trouble, aren't we? He said, yeah, we're going to feel some pain for this. And it wasn't but a few months later that we really started to come off the rails as a company. And what had happened was I built this company way too fast. I was very unstable. I was equated to this, that I was balancing a kitchen chair on two legs with my feet off the ground, trying to eat my breakfast, right? It was very unstable. I built a house of cards. So I bought too many properties way too fast and didn't take time to stabilize them. I was over leveraged. 
I paid too much for properties. When I say it was over leveraged, 85% loan to value on $60 million worth of real estate. The bank should have shut me down a long time before that, but they were throwing money at us. So it was easy to get loans. It was easy to buy deals. And that's what I did. I just kept buying deals. So as a result of that, I thought that buying another deal would fix it, that it would inject some cash, inject some cash flow, but it didn't. I'd been involved in recessions in the past and seen corrections in the market of 10%, lasted 17 or 18 months. This lasted seven or eight years at a 40% correction. There's a lot of people that are still affected by it today, but my occupancies dropped. I couldn't pay my bills. I couldn't pay my investors. So I'm not the kind of guy to come to you and tell you we have a problem and there's an issue. I want to fix it. I want to be the hero and then come to you and say, hey, we had a problem and I fixed it. Well, as a result of that, I started to move money between companies and I started to take profitable companies, take the cash flow, put it in non-profitable companies, thinking I could shore the whole ship up, write it out and be able to fix everything when the market switched back. Well, that was fine. My accountant, my attorney said, hey, it's okay to do that. Just leave a paper trail. But nobody ever told me to disclose it to my investors. So I never told my investors. And because I didn't disclose it to my investors, I ultimately was charged with wire fraud and mail fraud charges and sentenced to 10 years in federal prison as a result of it. Wow. I mean, what you're describing is an offense under the Securities Act. That's what it would normally be treated as. And you got charged with something much more serious than that. Yeah, right. Five years before I got in trouble, and this was before the Bernie Madoff error, right? Five years before I got in trouble, I would have been slapped on the hand, fined $250,000 by the SEC, go back, straighten your business. But today the feds destroy everything, destroy your life, take everything away from you, and don't give you an opportunity for any type of redemption at that point. Wow. So very sobering message. What did you learn? What did I learn? Boy, I learned a lot. While I was gone, you know, I went into prison and you have to understand I lived this lifestyle. It was middle class. I never flew private. I didn't buy a big boat. I didn't have a fancy house or or fancy cars. I was trying to build a business. I knew that the back end was that I could sell that that portfolio at 10,000, 15,000 units to a REIT or to a hedge fund when I was done. And I could have gone off. And that was the deal I had with my wife. Let me take one more run at this thing and and we'll retire and play golf for the next 20 years. Well, it didn't work out that way. What I did was I went from that lifestyle to all of a sudden living in a 12 by 12 room with three men I didn't know out of a two by five locker with three green outfits and five pairs of underpants wondering what the hell happened in my life. I, I walked around thinking my life was over. I really felt that it was. But about 17 days into my prison stint, my wife decided she was going to divorce me and move on with her life. And then my life was really over. I really felt like I didn't know what I was going to do. My identity and everything was in my apartments and in my business and in my family. And so now I'm left to wonder what life's going to be like. Well, I had somebody walk up to me and there's a saying in prison that says, hey, you can either do the time or let the time do you. And I chose to do the time. So somebody walked up to me and said, hey, don't let these people get to you. All they want to do is take your business, take your real estate, take your cars, destroy your family. But what they can't take is what you're made of. 
They can't take what's inside of you, who you are, your knowledge and your experience. Said, get that 10 years back. Come to the gym, work out every day. Find out who you are. And I did. I started going to the gym. I started losing weight. I started to feel better physically. I went to college. I got a bachelor's degree in theology. I wrote two books. One's called Exit Plan, Your Complete Guide to Multifamily Investing and Why You Need an Exit Plan Before You Buy. I wrote an ethics course. I taught ethics. I taught real estate. I taught property management and Bible studies for five, six years in prison. I was on an outreach program. I went into the community and told my story to local businesses and college students. I befriended a professor at the University of Minnesota, and we wrote a paper together, and it got published this year in the Business Journal of Ethics. So I did a lot while I was gone. I reinvented myself, and I came home, and today I'm in the coaching and training space. So what I learned was that I didn't have to let that failure define me or define the rest of my life, that I could take those mistakes that I made, take the experience that I had, and let my new experience define me and help bring a message of hope and inspiration to other people through my mistakes. Wow. What was it within you that caused that switch to flick where you decided not to be a victim any longer and to take charge of your life? Hmm. It's a great question. You know, all the podcasts I've been on, I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that question. You know what? I've always been a survivor. I've always been a guy who has a work ethic that is, I believe, second to none. I, I, I stay focused and committed, and I wasn't going to let it beat me. That conversation with that guy in the gym that day made me shift my thinking to a point of, I'm not going to let these people beat me. You know, they say success is the best revenge, right? So why not come back and stand tall and re-engineer myself, reinvent myself and be somebody that I wasn't before and be filled with love and grace for others and teach a message and a business that people love? Because I love multifamily. I absolutely love multifamily. And if I can give that away to others and help others be successful, that's my goal today. I love that. So in your teaching, when you work with clients today, what are the biggest issues that you see people tripping over and over again? Is it just a repeat of the pre-2008 or are they new types of issues that you're seeing? You know, I, I come from the belief that nobody grows professionally until they grow personally. So as a coach, as a trainer, I teach everything everybody teaches in that box, you know, goal setting and networking and how to find deals and buy deals and go to contract. And I teach exit planning. That's the name of my book, right? I don't know that enough people teach how to get out of a deal or when to, but yeah, I teach all that stuff in the box, but I have to teach outside of the box. Let me give you a quick example. I had a client really struggling with his business and couldn't get his business to the next level. And I asked him a simple question. I said, what's your marriage like? He had made some comments over a couple of week period that things were, were rough. I encouraged him to do a couple of things with his wife that changed everything. And his marriage changed, his business changed as a direct result of that. This is beyond business coaching. This is really caring about people. You know, there's that old cliche that says, people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And if I care more about somebody's personal being than I do about their business, their business is just a, a benefit of what happens. Now, with that said, 
I think what's really important today is the underwriting that we're looking at. People are being way over the top on underwriting. They're not being conservative enough. I think people, again, are overpaying for properties, are over leveraging, and that that shades of what happened in 2007 and 2008 and could cause some problems down the road. And people need to be aware of those metrics, I think. We certainly are in a set of market conditions that show some similarities. I won't say that it's identical because it's not. That show some similarities to that pre-2008 time period. People would say that, oh, it's different now. The banks are better capitalized and the banks have more reserves. But you know, I'm not sure that's entirely true. I think the only real message right now is the Federal Reserve's got your back. I think that's really the only message that I'm hearing consistently is that the banks are not going to be allowed to fail because the Fed's going to take care of it somehow. When you put 25% or 50% of the national debt and print money back into the market, really, how long can this sustain? Not long. You're right. They're not going to let the banks fail, but but it's because they keep printing money. Yeah. And so there was a point in time that the world and the money in the world was backed by gold. Mm-hmm. And we've superseded that today. And so what's backing it? I just say that because I have my concerns. Now, I'm not a doomsday guy, and I certainly don't say don't do deals. Just be conservative and watch how you're underwriting. If you were to do it over again, and I'm sure you would do many things differently, rather than trying to bail things out by commingling funds, what would have been the right thing to do, even though it would have been difficult? Well, the short answer to that is call my investors and say, hey, listen, we have an issue. We need capital. Do a cash call. So when I talk about some of the mistakes I made, one of them was I pulled that provision out of my PPM. I thought the market was so good, so great, so hot that I wasn't ever going to need to call my investor for a capital call. So I told my attorney, I said, hey, you know what? Let's use this as a marketing thing. I said, let's pull that provision out of the PPM and not have a capital call in there. What a mistake that was, right? Because now I don't have that provision in there. So to go to my investors and say, wow, I double whammied mistake. I took this provision out. Plus, we don't have the money to pay the bills. We need capital. That really would have made me look bad. And I didn't want to be that guy. Today, after what I've learned and what I've been through, today, I would do it. I'd call you up and say, hey, Victor, we have an issue. We need capital. That's one thing. I would have overraised money and let some money sit in the deal. And the other thing is that I would not have bought as many properties as I bought as quickly as I bought them in 2007. 2007, I bought 17 deals for 2,700 units. We didn't have time to breathe, catch our breath, was closing after closing after closing, and we didn't have time to stabilize them. So that was an issue, especially for a new operator, right, at that time. Absolutely. Well, Mike, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Thanks, Victor. I appreciate that. First of all, I'm all over in social media, right? Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. But you can go to my website at mycoreintentions.com. You could direct message me at mike at mycoreintentions.com. And if you want a copy of Exit Plan, you can go download a free copy at mycoreintentions.com forward slash exit plan, and you can download a free copy there. Fantastic. Well, Mike, hopefully your mistakes is our wisdom 
and that none of us have to go through what you went through. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Mike at mycoreintentions.com. That's mycoreintentions.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.